if there was ever a moment for U.S. leadership to advocate for why active membership and shaping of the international system benefits Americans, now would be the time. It is the week of March 23rd, and welcome to episode 17 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today we have Dana Struhl, former senior staff member at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Jamil Jaffer, the founder of the National Security Institute and its executive director, and also the former chief counsel and senior advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, our returning guest, Katrina Mulligan, managing director for national security and international policy at the Center for American Progress, and myself, Lester Munson, a senior fellow at NSI and the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So, we're in a near lockdown mode here at Fault Lines and are recording this podcast via telephone. So forgive us for whatever changes in quality you may be experiencing. The uh, news, of course, is all coronavirus all the time. And we're going to talk about U.S. foreign policy, its challenges and opportunities during this mega crisis. The coronavirus, of course, got its start in China, and now it's everywhere around the globe. TV news, Chirons and Twitter and President Trump are all obsessed with the name of the virus. We're going to try and go beyond that debate, if you can call it a debate, and get to uh, some of the essential questions in foreign policy, particularly the state of the relationship between the United States and China. It's the most important bilateral relationship in the world. And uh, as it goes, so goes a lot of the fortunes of billions of people around the planet. So Jamil, let's go to you first. What what can you say about how the coronavirus crisis has affected U.S.-China relations? Well, look, I mean, obviously, U.S.-China relations already had some challenges uh, given the trade situation that we had going with them. Uh, but certainly things have gotten worse um, since the coronavirus began, even though the president has uh, praised President Xi at times, uh, his handling of the crisis. Uh, we've also seen the president refer to the coronavirus famously as the Chinese virus. Uh, Secretary Pompeo has called it the Wuhan virus. Um, you know, and so and then you've got the, the Chinese deputy um, uh, in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs tweeting uh, that it was a U.S. military operation to bring this virus to China. So uh, sort of the war words has, uh, has heated up. Um, we also know uh, the facts that the Chinese suppressed information about the virus early on. Uh, they, uh, they took steps to avoid um, it, being, it being noticed on the world stage uh, and minimize its impact. And of course, uh, in that time, it spread worldwide, uh, including uh, in particular to the United States, to Italy, to Iran. Um, and here we are um, in a pretty bad situation here uh, with significant cities across the country uh, in, in lockdown mode and, uh, and, uh, and huge amounts of money now being spent um, by our federal government and other governments around the globe uh, to address this very real, uh, very real threat. So one of the things uh, that, that, Jamil, I want to push you a little bit on this before we go to our other uh, folks in the panel. Um, one of the things that has I found notable is that President Trump, on the one hand, is uh, you know using the name of the virus to blame China for what's happening. He is also still saying positive things about President Xi, the Chinese leader, through this whole thing. It's been going on for months. At a personal level, he seems to be trying to to butter up uh, the number one guy in Beijing. What's what's that all about? What is what do we make of that? I don't know. You know, it, it has the president does have a, a, a interesting attraction to autocrats. Uh, we've seen his uh, his uh, preference for uh, President Xi, for the North Korean dear leader um, and for Vladimir Putin. 
Uh, so this is a this is a trend with uh, the president. Of course, it is interesting because a lot of people who criticize the president are now uh, upset that the president is not being more authoritarian and more aggressive, not using the Defense Production Act, uh, not not uh, sort of using federal troops uh, and getting more involved. So it's interesting. There's a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But I will say the president does have an odd preference. Uh, for autocrats and, and has these very strange sort of personal relationships with some of these leaders uh, where he where he lauds them personally and butters them up the same way I think that he enjoys being buttered up uh, himself in, in, in the United States. And you, you see it you see it at every at every press conference. He's attacked uh, by uh, or, or gets a tough question of a reporter. He attacks that reporter or gives him a softball and he praises their news outlet without even knowing, knowing the news outlet they're from and talks about how great a reporter they are um, just based on the tone of the question delivered. It's an odd. Uh, it's an odd situation to be sure. Dana, what's what's your reaction as you watch uh, this uh, kind of multi-level uh, game being played out on TV screens and in headlines, uh, and certainly among the commentariat? What what what's your assessment of the bilateral relationship right now? I think it's clearly on a downward trajectory. So if you if we pause on the current coronavirus and backtrack to last year. We had disputes over Huawei and state-sanctioned espionage all over the world. We had disputes over the Chinese, the Beijing government's suppression of, of protests in Hong Kong. We have continuing disputes over Taiwan. We have, I don't even want to call it a disagreement, the mass incarceration of the Uyghur population in China. We have the manner in which the Chinese were using their Belt and Road Initiative, their assistance, throwing their weight around at the United Nations, challenging the United States and the Security Council in concert with Russia, um, Chinese state-led sanctions evasion, et cetera, et cetera. None of these issues, oh, not to mention the trade war, the escalation in tariffs, et cetera. None of those issues have been resolved. They continue to hold hostage the global economy, et cetera. And then on top of that, now, knowing what we know about how slow the Chinese government was to respond to what it understood about the outbreak of coronavirus in, in Wuhan province, um, which clearly compromised global health of the entire world, not to mention the global economy, now um, you have the United States antagonizing China even more. China's actually appears to be on a path to recovery and is now seizing the vacuum of United States absence to make itself look like a benevolent government, offering to, um, cat, to supply medical supplies, offering assistance, sending its doctors to Italy, for example. So from all of the hard power, great power competition that has characterized the first couple years of the Washington and Beijing uh, slow rising escalation, now you actually have the Chinese seizing the soft power vacuum and attempting to turn around this entire narrative that we could have actually contained or prevented what is a global pandemic at this point in time and, and positioning themselves to look like the benevolent leader of the world in, in assisting other countries in combating the virus in their own domestic settings. Katrina, I want to I get your take on this uh, and, and maybe we put it in the context of exactly that global leadership. The U.S. is pretty inwardly focused these days, although in the uh, in cor the corona stimulus package number 3 which is in the in the senate and the house this week there it looks like there's going to be a little bit more than a billion dollars for international affairs for state and for USAID to do some programs around the world but as as Dana just pointed out the chinese 
uh, have sent uh, 300 doctors and other medical professionals to Italy. They're being out front and in the, the public eye, in the spotlight. They are reaching out to folks around the world, including people who are our friends and allies. What are we, what are we to make of, of the, the challenge from China right now? Is it, it's, it seems to have advanced a couple of steps here during the crisis. What's your, what's your take? Well, I would actually go a little bit further than what um, others are saying. I mean, piggybacking on what Dana said, I, I mean, China has now donated medical equipment, masks, or other types of support to 83 countries. And these aren't just, you know, they've certainly 54 of them are African countries, but you also have other um, countries, um, Spain, France, Italy, um, others that have been mentioned that are, that are partners um, and allies of the United States. And I want to ratchet up how we think about this a little bit, because what we're starting to see is, um, is this effort at soft power paying off. We're seeing, um, we're seeing responses from some of our partners and allies that about China that feel and sound like the way they used to talk about us are not only a dear friend, but a brother is one quote. Another quote is, you know, proves the profound friendship between our two peoples. Um, Iron brothers. There's any number of um, ways that our our partners and, and allies are talking about China that used to be the way they talked about us. And I think I think it would be wise for U.S. China watchers to pay close attention to that because I don't think it signals a short-term or sort of sporadic or or, um, or sort of temporary condition. I actually think there's a strategic shift going on and it's intentional on the Chinese part. And to some degree, it's intentional on the part of the people receiving that, that support. Jamil, strategic shift going on. You know, we're we're the Republicans in the group here. We're, uh, you know, in the past we have been for international leadership and a prominent U.S. role in the world, and we didn't really care if, uh, you know, people thought we were being cultural imperialists or even imperialist. Period. So uh, that doesn't seem to be the approach of our guys anymore. What's going on? No, I think I think you're right, and I think the concern here, of course, is that um, is that China does control a tremendous amount of the world's economy. Um, and in particular, in this crisis, they, they control, they bought up a huge amount of the PPE, the, the protective equipment. Um, and they also um, control a lot of manufactured pharmaceutical supplies. And so, you know, while I'm not a huge believer in uh, manipulating the world economy, so you buy domestically, although I think there are times at which you need to do that uh, for national security purposes, I think that, you know, things like uh, the bill that uh, Senator Tom Cotton and Representative Mike Gallagher from, Arkansas, from Wisconsin have, have uh have put forward this idea that our, we should bring our pharmaceutical manufacturing back home uh, is an important part of the conversation because the last thing you want to do is to be dependent upon uh, another nation for core things like that, particularly in response to thing, something like that we have going on here, like the pandemic. Um, and we are increasingly relying on China. Um, rare earth metals is another area where we have real challenges in, in, in the technology-oriented future world uh, that we live in. Um, that's a real problem. And, uh, and the Chinese are leveraging that uh, knowledge, and that skill set, and uh, the access resources that they have uh, to their advantage. And look, I mean, any other nation state would do it too. I'm not, I'm not saying that they're doing something uh, inappropriate or, 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 or crazy. It's just something we have to recognize uh, that is happening around the world. And we need to, on the flip side of that, uh, take, uh, take responsibility. Um, and if we want to remain a world leader, we have to behave like one. Dana, uh, let's, let's kind of look at the numbers a little bit. The Congress is about to spend $2 trillion on responding to the virus. 
the vast, the vast majority beyond the vast majority is for domestic concerns. A lot of that's appropriate. We got to protect Americans. We need to look after each other and, uh, and fill the gaps that are, that are becoming bigger and bigger, but only uh, of that $2 trillion, a billion dollars or so is going to be spent on international affairs. That's not 1%. That's not 0.1%. That's 0.05%. Normally, in a situation like this in the U.S. budget, U.S. federal government budget, about 1% of what we spend goes to State Department and foreign assistance. So this is, this is only 5% of that normal, already very small amount. What it, are we missing a huge opportunity here? Why, why isn't, there seems to be no interest on, from either the Republican side or the Democratic side, feel free to challenge me on this, in the U.S. asserting a bigger a, a substantially bigger global leadership role, which we have done in the past, which is appropriate. The, there's clearly a huge need out there. Why aren't, why aren't we responding? It doesn't seem like either party really wants to step up here. I think this would be tricky to challenge in any administration. Uh, certainly members of Congress on both sides of the aisle are overwhelmingly inwardly focused on our own domestic situation, very much because of the failure of the federal government to organize a response in the early days of this pandemic. Um, and I also don't see a very nuanced discussion taking place about what kinds of assistance or what US leadership could look like on the world stage at this point. So yes, China's providing medical supplies because it bought up a lot of those medical supplies and also dominates the supply chain for producing and manufacturing a lot of those medical supplies. US assistance does not need to be in-kind assistance. We have tremendous public health technical expertise we need to be assisting countries, especially developing fragile countries, not necessarily responding immediately now, but to the second wave and the third wave of these virus. If you listen to some reports of, of what, you know, how life is proceeding in certain countries in other parts of the world, there is no self-quarantine. There aren't self-distancing procedures. The governments are not taking any of the necessary precautions to present to prevent the spread of this. What about all of the conflicts of this displaced people, refugees all over the world in, in really suboptimal positions, tents where they don't have access to water, regular hygiene, medical professionals, et cetera. We could be engaging there to focus more. So it, again, so my point is it doesn't have to be in-kind assistance. I agree that neither party is talking in, in a nuanced or sophisticated way about what US leadership on the world stage could look like at some point. A lot of that, I think, is because we didn't have a good response here at home. We're not demonstrating, uh, I think, um, an enviable model to the rest of the world about how you deal uh, with a situation like this at this point in time. Katrina. Yeah, I mean, again, I would actually just go further than, than what's already been said. And I would say, you know, there is absolutely no way at this point that the U.S. can show any kind of leadership given the abysmal state of our own response. And so, you know, I, I think the lesson from this is, you know, you have, we have to get our act together at home if we have um, any chance of influencing anybody beyond our borders. And and quite to the contrary. So when we had some opportunities to to choose different courses of action, and we and we didn't. So, you know, our are retreating to nationalist responses that we saw, you know, as the U.S. started shutting its borders, as the U.S. started, you know, I mean, even rumored, you know, negotiations with uh, German companies about developing a vaccine exclusively for U.S. use. I mean, all kinds of things that the U.S. has done in the global 
um, landscape that have really hurt um, and not helped um, the view of America as a global leader, as having the best interests at heart for everybody and not just itself. Um, so, I mean, our ability to rally the international community right now, I think is, is really in the toilet. Um, and, and I think you would have to see significant shifts and improvements in our own ability to handle this response to be, as a predicate. Like you couldn't even begin talking about um, what we could do in the world until you get until you get that piece done. All right, Dana, I want to I want to go back to you, but I want to I want to challenge that a little bit. Maybe you can respond. I uh, I realize that the the response domestically here in the U.S. has been. Uh, fraught to some extent, and certainly the topic of a lot of partisan conversations on both sides, and there's there's plenty to complain about. Uh, on the other hand, you know, you've seen uh, Governor Cuomo in New York, uh, Governor Newsom in California praise President Trump for his responses, at least in some instances. There's been some uh, examples of collaboration across the parties, although <laughs> as we're recording this, it's certainly breaking down in the Senate, uh, hopefully to be repaired by the time this thing actually airs. Uh, let's, just, let's just assume American politics are messy, they're in public, they're subject to constant uh, controversy and criticism, and, and it's never going to be a clean slate. Uh, why aren't we doing more internationally? Why isn't the Democratic Party calling for a Marshall Plan for coronavirus aid to the developing world where, you know, we haven't seen a lot of bad news out of, for example, sub-Saharan Africa, but you got to think that there's going to be a huge, huge problem there. Uh, public health systems, generally speaking, across the continent are not that terrific. Uh, we, we could be seeing a, a real calamity. Why aren't the normally, I would say, liberal internationalist voices being louder about the need abroad right now? So I'm going to be the cynical one here and say that generally foreign assistance is not that popular with either party. If you talk to your average American constituent when they come to the Hill, their question is not, why are you not spending money there and not here? It's why are you spending any money abroad and not at home? So that is a fundamental misunderstanding by the by all American constituents or voters and the American public in general about US foreign assistance. It's not unique to either party. And I would say, and we've discussed on this podcast, it's a failure of leaders in in both parties to articulate the importance of US global leadership, both through assistance and other kinds of, of leadership and assistance and engagement and what it does for your average American. But I think it would be a losing losing proposition for a democratic leader at this point in time when it feels as if our government is absolutely failing to respond to the crisis here at home. When Americans are stuck in their homes, we are having debates about how are we going to feed kids who aren't getting their meals from public schools? What are we going to do about lack of hospital beds? We're debating our own healthcare system, et cetera, to then be advocating at this point in time for spending more money abroad when we haven't gotten our own house in order. I know Jamil wants to jump in. I just want to say on a broader level, it's not just about the United States not presenting um, a viable or replicable model for how to address this pandemic at this point in time. I actually think if you look at some of the problems in European countries as well, what is at stake here is demonstrating that democracy as a form of government can take care of its people. And when you have the Surgeon General of the United States talking about, well, 
We're not like China. We're not an authoritarian government, so we just can't mandate things. And then you look at how we're trying to respond and you have debates between state government and national government and a failure to work together in a way to rapidly respond to the crisis here. What's at stake is not just U.S. global leadership. It is making it clear to people both here in this country and abroad and in non-democratic countries that democracy does work and it does work for people and that leaders are committed to what benefits their people. And right now I would say it's not, it's not just about U.S. failure to lead. It is about making clear that the entire system of democracy works for people. Jamil. No, I, look, I think I, I, as much as I hate to say it, I think Dana and Katrina are exactly right. I mean, let's be, let's be candid, Les. The, the response to date in the United States has been a joke. I mean, it's been amateur hour. Right. The federal government has completely and utterly failed in its response to the coronavirus. Uh, it's only because state governors have led um, in key states uh, that we've seen any real uh, effective response to this. Um, and to, to a large extent, the federal government has gotten in the way of those efforts. Uh, they haven't done their part. They haven't picked up the steam. You know, I mean, look, this is the t- kind of time when when even uh, conservatives and even libertarians say there is a role for the federal government. There's a role for the federal government to play. And it's an important one. Um, and now you have these ridiculous debates on Capitol Hill about whether we should fund the unemployment system or send $1,200 checks to Americans. I mean, the, the, the economy is tanking. People are at home afraid they can't you know, go to an emergency room they can't afford to pay for the emergency room um, and concerned about these very basic needs. And, and, and elites in Washington, D.C. who don't have to worry about getting their paycheck because their $150,000 salary for the Senate is going to get paid every time. And their staffers and their interns and all of them are all just fine. I mean, that's the amateur hour of this, of this entire response. And the president stands up there and talks about how we're opening up uh, hospitals and the like and hotels. Like, I want to know whether the president is and opening up his hotels and his resorts uh, to the sick and, and needy in New York and in, other, and in places like Florida. Is Mar-a-Lago open today? Because I bet you it isn't. Um, and so this whole idea that somehow, you know, uh, we should lead around the world, we can barely get together at home. And the American people are seeing that. And the American people wouldn't accept less uh, the idea of us spending money overseas on some big foreign aid program here. And they shouldn't because we're not spending the money we need to at home and take that for now. Look, the American people have responsibility there here, too. Absolutely. This is what happened in Clearwater, Florida. We're having seen in, in Arizona is also ridiculous. People should get the message and stay at home. But that leadership has to come from the top. And when you have the president and other leaders question whether this thing will be over in a few days or not. Right. It doesn't help. It doesn't give people you know, the message they need, which is stay at home, don't go out and about, don't infect other people when you don't know that you have the thing. I mean, it's ridiculous. All right, let's get back to uh, our presumed area of expertise here, though, which is foreign policy and national security concerns, and, and uh, kind of put the, our, our evaluation of, of the response domestically maybe on the back burner for a second. We've, we've got real interest at stake in the world, right? If we're going to recover economically, we need a, a global system that is based on the rule of law and free trade. And although some now are calling it fair trade, which I think is, um, you know, a, a name without a real meaning. But, you know, we, we need the U.S. for the U.S. to thrive and to be prosperous. It's not just enough to do things within our borders. We need a global system that can sustain our way of life. We're doing nothing to protect that right now, except the barest of minimums and, and perhaps not even that. So where's the, you know, where's the Secretary of State? Where's the National Security Advisor? Where's the Defense Department talking about the exposure we have, not just domestically, but in the international sphere? Why aren't we? They're why aren't all at our the White House podium. 
Katrina, standing, go ahead. Go ahead. They're, they're, you ask where they are, they're all standing behind the White House podium, shoulder to shoulder, you know, not taking social zero, distancing. Yeah, not to, social distancing and taking no precautions at all. I mean, it's, look, the bottom line is that, you know, we've, we've kind of already covered this question of U.S. providing direct aid and, and what some of the, you know, pros and cons are to that approach. I don't think any of us feels like providing direct aid is like our best advantage on the field right now. But there are two areas where we could be leading and just totally aren't. One is um, leading the global economic response um, by actually, you know, treating this as not just a public health emergency, but also an economic emergency. Um, and there's quite a lot of things that we could be doing in that space that we we really aren't. The other area is seizing the microphone to actually provide solid, trustworthy information. And I hate to point out, that hasn't been a strong point for us either. We used to be a, a trusted source of information analysis and leadership around the, around the world about all kinds of global crises. But instead of doing that, our president is contradicting public health officials, disregarding the World Health Organization recommendations. And now, you know, not only did he downplay the seriousness of this issue um, early on, but now we're already back to talking about how long is this going to go on. And you're hearing the president parrot what he's hearing on Fox News. I mean, this, the White House really should abandon its efforts to downplay the crisis and speak with one coordinated voice um, to not just to Americans, but to the rest of the world. If you're advising Joe Biden right now, who evidently is going to start doing his own kind of daily discussion about how he thinks the U.S. should respond to this crisis. What do you, what do you advise him to say, aside from anything on the, on the domestic response, which, you know, we're not, is not necessarily our purview here today, but on the international response, do you advise him to call for a summit of leaders, maybe the next G7 or G20, advance the agenda for an international meeting to talk about response to the crisis? Do you, do you put on the table a revised and revamped World Health Organization that can actually respond to crises like these in a real way. And I would just point out, and I'm not going back and casting any aspersion on the Obama administration during Ebola from six years ago, but we kind of waited for WHO to solve the problem. They didn't. And then the Obama administration itself had to step in and provide a real, more of a bilateral response than a multilateral response. It seems to me there's a huge need for smarter policy, revised international institutions, real leadership is, are we going to see the former vice president call for something like that? I don't know what the former vice president is going to call for, but this, the moment we are in, right now we're in crisis response. Um, hopefully measures being taken here in the United States will flatten the curve of, of coronavirus here. What's clear, I think, is that it's not going to flatten everywhere. So we're going to have a divide globally where some countries and continents took measures to flatten the curve while others didn't. And as long as other countries and other societies and other governments don't take necessary precautions, this virus is going to cycle again and again and again with massive implications for the interconnected global economy, global travel, and it will continue to jeopardize the health of, of all countries and, and, and all people in the world. So, what global leadership would look like at this point is immediate coordination on crisis response and a, a surveying of which governments and which countries and which sub-regional groupings need what kind of resources and how together can we do that. 
Number two would be attempts to the most at-risk, high-needs high populations, refugees, IDPs, active civil wars, hot wars, et cetera. What can we do? I think um, the Secretary General of the United Nations today called for a global ceasefire. These are the sorts of things. This, this virus is so serious. We need the United States and other responsible members of the international community to immediately take actions to stop violence, to stop conflict, to do what we can to get assistance and resources to the most at-risk high-needs communities. And then number two, to start planning for the medium term. And the medium term is the next wave of this virus, and that's in the fall. And then the third wave, which is early next year. And what you're talking about, less revamping of the international system, or what we can learn about um, uh, dependence on the global supply chain, et cetera. Those are, I think, very serious things for, for U.S. leadership to contribute to. But right now, we are absolutely in crisis response. I do think the former vice president can offer some ideas about how we can leverage this moment in time to reflect on the interconnectedness, the need for U.S. global leadership, why it's important, why investment of resources abroad matters for American citizens at home. Now is the time to start laying the groundwork for those kinds of messages. If there was ever a moment for U.S. leadership to advocate for why active membership and shaping of the international system benefits Americans, now would be the time. But I also think right now is the time for crisis response. Camille. Well, look, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, if uh, Vice President Biden were to uh, come out and, you know, defend a position taken by the Quincy Institute uh, for Responsible Statecraft here in Washington, D.C., which recently argued that we should be funding uh, more uh, medical aid uh, and, and pharmaceuticals to Iran, which is suffering. Oh, come on, Jamil. <laughs> I mean, look, I mean, look, the, the Quincy Institute's put out a statement saying that they're supportive of that. Of course, this comes at a time when, of course, Iran Iranian proxies are killing Americans in Iraq, whatever. Um, but, uh, but my point is this, right? There are those who think that we ought to uh, be doing more on the world stage and, you know, and, and, and helping others out. And look, I'm, I'm a big believer in that uh, when the time is right, right? Now the time is to focus at home um, and address our, our issues here. And when we get the situation under control here, then we can talk about going abroad. And if, if Joe Biden wants to talk about responsible leadership overseas, hallelujah, I'm a big, I, I believe, you know, I think that's an important thing to talk about. Now, to do it now would probably be tone deaf. So what I'm saying is, less than what could the former vice president contribute? What I notably did not say was calling for more international resources right now for in-kind support. First of all, the Chinese are flooding the zone. And I also said that right now is the time to coordinate crisis response and what happens with the next wave of this virus, which is going to happen this year in a lot of countries who are not taking the precautions that we are now. What I am also saying is now is the time for U.S. global leadership to begin to articulate what it means to be a member of the international community, why it benefits Americans to be a leader in that international community. And if you want to have a debate right now about Iran and Iran sanctions, fine. what is remarkable to me is that there is some discussion here about Iran and what sorts of supplies we could give them, not necessarily sanctions relief. And we're not talking about that in any of the other contexts in which there are clearly populations who, who have coronavirus. And we're not talking about the letter that Trump sent to North Korea. We're not talking about the Assad regime in Damascus who just announced, oh, we have some corona cases here. Big shocker, big surprise, everybody. No one's talking about relieving sanctions on Syria so we can give supplies or give some financial aid to that war crime 
war criminal regime in Damascus. Um, so I know that the Quincy Institute and there's this small community who wants to make this about irresponsible Democrats and Iran sanctions relief. What's quite clear to me is the Trump administration uh, is in no way contemplating that. And I don't think it, it benefits the, the former vice president to jump into a weedy argument like that. Again, I think it misses the message at this point in time. I don't know, Dana. I, I have to jump in and just say, I think we just heard something very extraordinary from our friend Jamil. I mean, it sounds like what he's saying is that America can't walk and chew gum at the same time. And it sounds like what I just heard is that he doesn't actually believe in American exceptionalism anymore. He's perfectly fine having the Chinese, you know, be the ones who both got the the worst of the outbreak managed to flatten their curve are now you know are now lifting you know their stay home orders for their people and they can go out there and help the rest of the world but i guess he just doesn't think that america is up to the task i appreciate that perspective from you jamil jamil do you want to respond to that well i mean given that we haven't been up to the task of protecting our own people and doing it effectively i don't think we're up to the task right now and that's a problem of leadership bipartisan failure of leadership in washington dc it starts at the top of the white house but it goes right through Democrats yesterday who voted against uh, the spending bill last time on the Senate floor. So look, there's plenty of blame to go around. There's been a complete failure of federal leadership on this issue. And yes, today we can't walk and chew gum. We're all stuck at home and we're all isolated because the federal government can't get its stuff together. So yes, I think that is true today. It doesn't mean I don't believe in American exceptionalism. It doesn't mean I can't believe we can't lead in the world uh, tomorrow or when there's the next wave of this virus, as Dana correctly points out, right? And I do think it would be good if the vice president got out there and talked about these issues and made the case for American leadership in the world. But that should be a case being made at the, at the top of the administration too and by people in Congress. Unfortunately, they're just not up to the task. All right, let's do a uh, quick kind of exit question that is going to be a big one. Uh, and Katrina, I'll go to you first since you're, our, you're our, kind of our guest here. Um, will China actually impact our interests around the globe in a real way while we're distracted by our response to the coronavirus and uh, are you concerned about it? And if, uh, if not, why not? And if so, how exactly will they exploit it? Katrina. Well, number one, a hundred percent, it is going to happen. Number two, it already is happening. And I, you know, when I think about um, what is going to happen while we're not paying attention because we're focused on our domestic response, um, I think that it won't just be the Chinese that, that take advantage, um, but it certainly will include them. And I believe that some of what they're going to do um, is already beginning to show traction. So yes, very concerned. Dana. I also think one thing we need to look out for is how a lot of governments who used to be like-minded, partnered, or allied with the United States and are so fed up with Washington, either the unpredictability of the Trump administration or perceptions of aggression by the Trump administration, for example, toward Europe, are going to look for opportunities now to make it clear that they are not aligned with Washington. So a good example is Europeans adding their their voices with the Russians and the Chinese about sanctions relief for Iran at this point in time and using the opportunity to make it look like the United States is blocking this. Another, I, I mean, there's just, there's a lot of examples where I think the, the welcoming of Chinese aid and, and let's see what follows after we get through the peak of this crisis. Is it more Huawei contracts? Is it minutia and changes of positions on Hong Kong or Taiwan, et cetera, because we know the Chinese don't do anything out of the goodness of their hearts. So ways in which governments who already felt antagonized by the Trump administration are going to 
use some of the opportunities to either drift or deliberately continue to put wedges between themselves and Washington because of frustrations, disappointments, uh, anger over the last three years, lack of policy alignment, et cetera, I think is also something um, that's tremendously threatening to U.S. global leadership. Jamil. Yeah, no, I completely agree with Katrina and Dana. I think this is a real, uh, real challenging moment for the United States. Um, and I do think we're, we're, we're losing allies left and right. Um, and I don't think it's because we're not nice enough or the like. I think the problem is that, you know, we're erratic um, and we're inconsistent and we're, we are not an opponent to our enemies and we are not a friend to our allies. Um, and we need to be more of both. Uh, our enemies need to be afraid of us. Our allies need to know that we're there for them. Um, that has been the case for a long time. It has been the case for the last, the, the prior eight years, the prior administration, and it hasn't been the case for the last three years of this administration. And that's an unfortunate situation. We need to turn that around. We need real leadership, uh, both in the White House, but also on Capitol Hill, uh, where members of Congress have been completely absent from this debate um, and have barely participated because uh, they can't, uh, they, on one side, they're, they're not sure they believe in American exceptionalism. And on the other side, they can't stand up to a president of their own party. And so, uh, we've got real challenges. Uh, this is an increasing trend uh, here in the United States, and I worry uh, deeply about it. And you see it represented uh, by these voices out there that think we ought, to isol- we ought to isolate ourselves from the world. We ought to retreat back home. That is the wrong message to the United States. It is not what the American people have ever believed, and it's not what we should be doing. Yeah, I, I uh, agree. We'll make it four for four. Very concerned that China is going to exploit our lack, our, the current administration's lack of understanding about what our actual national interests are in the world, how important our European allies are, uh, even uh, to the point where this administration can't figure out how to use uh, the tension between Russia and China effectively to our advantage, which is shocking. That should be the one thing uh, President Trump is good at. So uh, four for four on uh, being very concerned about what China's gonna be doing. All right, let's go to the final uh, question for this week's podcast, which is what are the issue, what is the issue you're following? It's not necessarily in the headlines. I will go first. I am, first of all, I'm very disturbed that the Washington Post no longer has a sports section, except for on Sundays. That is a true evidence of the magnitude of the challenge before us. But I would also, uh, I would, and the real issue I'm tracking is, uh, the, the various lobbying efforts on the Olympics, which are uh, supposed to be held this summer. Uh, a lot of U.S. athletes want to either cancel or postpone the Olympics. They're afraid to go. Uh, I actually think that's a good thing. I think the Olympics are totally overrated. And as an internationally minded person, I'm not afraid to say I think they're, uh, they're a complete waste of time. So that might actually be a net positive overall for coronavirus. If we can just get past this whole Olympic nonsense, uh, I'd be okay with that. All right, Jamil. Uh, I'm following the uh, action of the International Criminal Court to begin investigating Americans in Afghanistan and Iraq and to investigate alleged war crimes by Americans uh, and uh, in, in those regions. Obviously, hugely troubling, uh, ridiculous. Uh, this just ex- demonstrates exactly why we never should have joined the International Criminal Court, should never sign the Rome Statute in the Clinton administration. It's good that the pre- President Bush pulled us out of that. Um, and uh, just another example of an international body gone awry. Uh, so I do believe in American leadership around the world. I do believe in American exceptionalism. I don't believe in kowtowing to stupid international institutions uh, that decide to uh, go after the very people that are trying to uh, protect those countries and their people uh, from terrorists and the like. Dana. I am not following a particular story as much as a trend right now in the Middle East. So many of our listeners may be familiar with the notion that many citizens across the Middle East believe that the United States created ISIS to focus the region, keep it down, et cetera. 
The latest conspiracy theory is that the United States created the coronavirus, most recently touted by the Supreme Leader in Iran in a huge speech, um, uh, televised or pre-recorded speech. He usually does them in person. He chose not to at this particular point in time to flatten the curve in Iran, I guess. But in general, there is a massive misinformation, disinformation campaign across the Middle East, most certainly aided by Chinese and Russian operations to convince people in the region that this is actually a U.S.-created bioweapon. And what's really disappointing is that U.S. partners across the Middle East aren't doing anything through their state-run media operations to counter that conspiracy theory. Katrina. So I'm following um, something, sadly, I'm following a lot of things that are are in the headlines. Um, but one thing uh, that I'm paying attention to that's not in the headlines are, uh, you know, the Defense Production Act um, and the president's inability to um, actually use it to do anything um, that will help expedite uh, procurement of um, essential equipment. Get it. Okay. All right. Thanks, everyone. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu. If you like what we're doing, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and our producer and director, Grant Haber, for all of his terrific work. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.